Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kedzis. Peter, hello. Hello, folks. And in this episode, I am thrilled to report we're coming to you from the fifth floor of Boston City Hall, more specifically from the office of Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, who is our guest for this installment. Mayor Walsh, thank you for making time to talk with us. Thanks for doing this. Looking forward to it. Let me start off by asking you, the last time you sat down with The Scrum, was at the end of your first year in office. You and I talked at this coffee shop in, in Charlestown. Yeah. You are now approaching six years, six years as mayor. Is there a rhythm to the job that you didn't have back then that you do have right now? Oh, good call. Um, I don't know. That's a good answer. I'm just, I never thought of that. I, you know, it, the rhythm to the job was just, just never stopped. The music just doesn't stop. <laughs> and and um, it really hasn't stopped. I think what, what, What's different is that when somebody walks through that door um, to give me news, uh, I'm not surprised anymore. Um, whether it's depending on whatever whatever they come through, it's just with the, with the daily occurrence here, uh, life moves so fast. Um, the issues and the topics I deal with on a daily basis change so quickly, and I think in that first year, I was I was just re- figuring out you know my role um, as mayor and how would I do that. Um, now it's you know it just nothing surprises me anymore I guess to say the least one of the things you mentioned back then also was the constant unceasing scrutiny from the media present company included you know you've got a zillion people out there talking about what you're doing questioning why you're not doing things you're not doing second-guessing the choices you're making have you gotten more used to dealing with that, or yeah. is that tough to you know, get because I, I think I understand your industry a little more than I did my first year in, and I think the fact that um, when this, when the business, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago with the mayor's office, it, it was trying to get in the paper and maybe the evening edition paper, and that was the way you get your message out, or maybe on the news, on TV. Uh, now it's a constant cycle, 24 hours, and, and I'm watching, you know, people... Um, you know, it used to be kind of, you know, the, the word was Friday was dump day, you dump stuff out. I don't think there is a dump day anymore. I think everything it, between social media and the way that the, the way that the media gets your information out, uh, I understand it a lot differently. I mean, it doesn't mean that I love it, uh, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm going in a time that it's a complete different world for media. Uh, and, and it's kind of like, what's the newest? What's the quickest? How do you break the news? Um, so I think I've, I've learned to adapt to it or, or, or just understand your industry. I really didn't know the media industry. I mean, as I said jokingly before we went on air, um, you know, I'd build a relationship with a few reporters just to have the relationship. But Back when you were a state when rep. When I was a state rep. And, and maybe if I filed a bill or something, they'd call me out of the blue, can we talk about an issue? But but as mayor, I mean, everyone wants your opinion, not on what, which is what I'm doing or working on, but every opinion about everything going on. Um, you know, even Antonio Brown was a question by a reporter <laughs> to me. How did I th- should the Patriots have signed him? What, what should have happened? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking like, oh man, like th- this is an issue that I have to. I'm the mayor. People expect to a- want me to answer the question. Yeah, I I know. Um, Deval Patrick had been in the office for a week, <clears throat> and we were in the green room, and this while we had met each other on the campaign trail, this was the first time we'd ever talked. And he said to me, I forget what the issue was. He says, am I expected to have an opinion about everything? And I said, Governor, you are. Yeah, yeah. But listen, that, talking about politics in the broader sense brings me to the question I wanted to ask. Let me preface it by saying, you know, I've covered Mayor White, Mayor Flynn, Mayor Menino, now you. And I know how many crazy rumors float 
around who occupies yeah. this office. Hold on, didn't you cover? Uh, didn't you shovel John Hines's driveway or something? Like I that? yeah, I, I didn't cover the him. Well, I was a little young. <laughs> yeah. I, I did shovel snow there too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hear many people here, but I hear you know with regularity people saying they don't think Marty Walsh is going to run for another term. And then they also say, you know, he doesn't seem to be having fun in the job. How would you respond to people like that? There's rumors all day long. Uh, there's rumors that I was going to run against Charlie Baker. There was rumors I was going to I'm going to run for governor. There's rumors that uh, I, I said the other day I'm, I'm not ruling out the United States Senate. Right. Um, you know, I, I just you know somebody asked me the question down the road. Uh, you know, not I, against Ed Markey, though. Not against them. No, they just they just threw that out there. So, <laughs> and I kind of I played along with it. Um, you know, this job is an amazing job in so many different ways that you can actually do so much good for so many people. Um, it's 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 different than being a state representative. Um, I've come to really appreciate the management of the job, uh, the financial management of the job, and, and making sure I'm kind of stuck on this AAA bond rating uh, rating for the city of Boston. I'm, I'm stuck on the growth of the city in, in, a, in a positive manner. Uh, I'm focused on, you know, inequality, making sure that we're a city for everyone. Um, you know, I have not, I've not decided, I've not made my mind up if I'm going to run again or not run again. Um, you know, I'm not going to make an announcement here on the radio. Uh, by the way, did, way, didn't think you would. You know? And incidentally, very smart choice, because if you made an announcement with us, no disrespect to our listeners, who we respect a great deal, but there's probably better outlets to do it. Yeah, well, <laughs> there'll be an announcement at some point, but, um, but, you know, I still have a lot of governing left in me. Um, and there's a lot of things I still want to accomplish in the city of Boston. And the rest of this term, is, is I'll have two years uh, in January, two full years to, to, to be able to do it. And in between the, my next, the, the next two years and, and, and the following year after that, I will have made my, made my mind up if I'm running again or not. Um, but but I, I do, I love doing what I do every day. Um, the things I love the most is the social service stuff. Um, the housing, the homeless. I love that stuff. I love the stuff we've done there with homelessness. Uh, I love the, the even though uh, the challenges of education. I love being in the classroom with kids and talking to young people, their innocence, and making sure that there's something here for them in the future. I was actually looking at a picture of you, which I think is in the lobby of City Hall, as you walk in, where there's a bunch of kids sitting. It looks like they're in a, almost like a reading circle. Maybe not a reading circle. They're watching an important guest yeah. talking with them. And I don't know if you're saying something, calling on one of them, but you have a look on your face. You look like you're treating the kid who you're talking to or the kids you're talking to like an actual human being. Yeah. You're not, you know, patronizing yeah, and patting their heads. I, I yeah. love dealing with them. And, and, and you know something, the, the, and just to, to, Peter, to, to follow up on, on what people say, I live my life a day at a time. And, and there's been days in here where, where I've walked out or gone out of here and gone home and had really difficult days. And I've had gone out of here um, and had difficult moments, and I've had a lot of great days and a lot of great moments. So I really don't base my, my, my passion for this job on one, one incident, whether it's a positive or a negative. I take it as a whole. And, and, and honestly, I, I love doing what I do every day. If I didn't, I wouldn't get up. I wouldn't be driving myself the way I am. I wouldn't be working. Literally, I've worked, I think, 30 straight days without a day off on weekends and stuff like that. If I wasn't thinking about the future or, or didn't like my job, I wouldn't put that much time and effort into this job. And I love it. And the people of Boston deserve it. it. Thanks for your candor. That's a good answer. Are there ever times that you find yourself thinking, this is a great job and I like doing it, but 
I wish I didn't have to do it in the Trump era? No, actually, I actually kind of like the fact that I'm doing this in the Trump era uh, because um, cities in America, including Boston, can show the world and show the United States of America how important municipal government is, actually is. Um, you know, Trump has, you know, for all intents and purposes in areas that I think they're important in Washington, quite honestly, whether it's immigration, housing, education, transportation, they're not in, in the climate, they're non-existent. And, and, the, and really cities are going to lead, cities lead. Uh, I mean, and I learned early on, so I got elected in 2014 and I was called out, well, I wasn't called, but a bunch of us were, were invited to the White House, a lot of the new mayors, and at the time, L.A. was new, New York was new, um, Seattle was new, um, Minneapolis was new, a lot of places were new, New Mayor Pittsburgh, um, Cincinnati, a lot of cities were new. And we went down there, we met with the president at the time, President Obama and the vice president, president Vice President Biden, and we sat at a table, and, and what the president said was that, you know, in his first term, basically, you know, he... He didn't really work with mayors as close as he should have because he could get his agenda out through the cities. But now in his second term, he's working a lot closer with mayors because their agendas line up and he understood that whatever policies that he wanted to put in place to change America or to help America, the mayors would have to carry it out regardless. So I learned very early on to build that relationship and, and that cities are, are, are the foundation, are the open door or the, or the first base, if you will, of a lot of this. So when you talk about climate resiliency, um, if cities aren't doing it, it's not getting done. You can come up with all the great policies at the state or at the federal government, but if cities aren't doing it, it's not going to happen. Housing. We can pass all the legislation we want on a, on, a, on a local level or on a national level, but we're the ones instituting the policy to make it happen on the street. Um, and that goes right down the line. Community police relations. You've talked a lot about that in this on this show. Across America, it, it's not going to be solved by a national policy. It's not going to be solved by a statewide piece of legislation. It's going to be solved by the mayors working with the police department, working with the community on building trust. So I think that I think that under the Trump administration or Trump era being being here, the only thing I would say that it's somewhat um, I wouldn't say frustrating is not the right word, but that's concerning is that. Trump has made it okay to say whatever you want, regardless of the, te- the tone of, your, of the voice. And, and that's, that's sometimes hard uh, because, you know, whether I'm defending an undocumented immigrant or I'm defending a poor person or a person of color, um, Trump has normalized some of this other anti-hate stuff, and, and I don't like that. So you feel like when people take issue with a decision that you made... Not necessarily me, even just uh, picking on somebody. Okay. You know, even just like picking on somebody. Like, for example, uh, you know, when, when the white supremacist group came in here for that march on Boston Common... You know, there was a lot of stuff on social media that was very mean and to the very hard on people. And, um, you know, it, it's just, it, it, I think we have to be more compassionate as Americans. I got to ask you to expand a little on what you just said, because I'm sure listeners will be wondering, um, they'll want to know exactly what you meant. When you say that there was stuff on social media that was too hard on people, or that was hard on people, what kind of stuff are you thinking Racism, of? going right to racism. Um, and, and, and calling people out and, and over over time I mean some of it happened here a lot of it happened around the country though when I was talking to my my colleagues in different parts of the country whether it was Dayton Ohio or, or Charlottesville or places like that you know um, a lot of it was based on race we, we had we had so do you mean that there were there the, the people who were they were going after people on social media they after pe- just, in a no, racist not manner or? Going after, just making their comments and negative racist comments gotcha you know, okay just general comments, okay I guess really like going after me or you an individual but going after a, a group Got of it. folks that's the only thing I think with the Trump era that 
I would say that, but but governing while he's president, I mean, obviously on the other flip side of that, if we had a Democrat, um, my housing development would be doing better. We'd have more money coming into public housing. We'd have probably an infrastructure bill right now, fixing roads and bridges. We'd probably have a lot more revenue coming into the state and down to the city. But, um, you know, that, that hopefully will come in the future. We're talking to you on the day that uh, City Councilor Michelle Wu released her proposal to yeah. Uh, eliminate the Boston Planning and Development Agency and replace it with a, a new structure. My understanding is that you have not yet had a chance to sit down and, and read this, right? It's a pretty substantial document. Yeah, I think it's document. 67 pages, something like that. I haven't actually, it's out, in the, it's out in my read file out there. So you are going to be at some point checking out what she has to say, the case yeah, she go, makes? I'm going to look through it. I mean, I'm, I'm, if there's anything in there that we think is, 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 is something that could be an improvement to the Boston Plan Development Agency, we're certainly going to look at that. Uh, when I ran for mayor, uh, there's no secret that I was very critical of the BRA um, at the time, and, and I felt that the BRA was kind of, it wasn't an open, inclusive place. Uh, I didn't feel a lot of transparency at the BRA. The old mayor was actually mad at me. Uh, he actually grabbed me at an event one day and let me know how happy he was with me for doing that. Mayor Menino did? Mayor Menino, yeah, we, we had back and forth. It was, a, it was, you know, but he was defending his agency. I mean, that's, that's what he did at the time. Um, but, you know, when I came in here, you know, we appoint, I appointed Brian Golden um, as a director. And the first thing we did was take an internal look. Uh, uh, we did a couple of different assessments of, of, of the BRA. Um, McKinsey did one, the first one, and we found that there were some systems that weren't working correctly upstairs. Uh, we made adjustments to that. Adjustments that the Globe actually did a great op-ed thanking and giving, um, giving praise to Brian and, and his team. And then we did a deeper dive looking at the planning aspects of, of the BRA. Um, in, in the development aspect. And what we really found out was that the, the planning side of it wasn't really a planning, it wasn't really a planning agency. We weren't doing a lot of planning. Um, and when we came back with the, with, the, with the different name and a different model, we, we added the word planning in there and, and, the pur and purposefully uh, because we had talked about, I had kicked around the idea during the campaign, do I separate planning from, from development? Um, and, and we said, wait a second, these two can coexist and co-function in the same office. And with the Boston Planning and Development Agency is what we came of. We had just done um, an Ima Imagine Boston 2030, a, a, a kind of a, a vision of what Boston should look like. The last time that City of Boston looked at looked at something like this, I think it was Mayor Collins that actually did a planning study in the city. Actually, it might have been before Collins. It was Collins. It, it, it was Collins. It was Collins. Um, and then the downtown skyline came with that. So we took a little deeper dive, and, and we started to look and see, think about planning. And, and right now, as we speak here today, we have 16 different planning processes going on in the city of Boston. Some of those are in areas like downtown Boston, looking at, um, that came out of the sale of Winthrop Square. Um, <coughs> we're looking in Dorchester, Glover's Corner. We're looking in Roxbury. We're looking in Jamaica Plain. We're doing one in East Boston and, and Charlestown and different areas. And we're looking at, in some areas, looking at the potential growth of those areas. In other areas, we're looking at the potential, you know, making sure Sure that we don't overdevelop in a community and hurt a community like East Boston, which didn't see development for a long time, and the last five years has seen so much that people are like, wait a second, we're seeing too much, and we're seeing speculators coming in buying one and two family homes to knock them down and build, you know, 10, 10, 12, 15 units, and that's not that should not be the intent, that should not be the purpose of, of a lot of this. Zoning is a hot button issue. I mean, not just because of the most recent scandals in that department. Well, let me just cut you one second. The scan there's no, as of right now, we don't know of any scandals in the zoning. Uh, we're doing an assessment, but I hear, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You're the correct. I know what you mean, the John Lynch. Yeah, I got to jump in. Sorry, Peter. So, so the John Lynch guilty plea, I mean that? Let's come back and cover that. I want to, we'll talk okay. about that. All right. let's, I, I, we'll get it, back. It, my particular view 
of what I call the scandal, it's not quite accurate, is that we have an isolated series of incidents with people who were in your orbit who betrayed your trust. And I'm not asking you to comment on yeah. that. That's my particular view. Peter's of the theory situation. of the case. That's my theory of the case. Lydia Edwards has a detailed proposal for um, changing the structure of zoning. One of the more interesting observations in Councilor Wu's study, and I've heard this figure before, is that roughly 50% of all construction in Boston, big or small, has to go through you know, the ZBA. I've always thought that there's something screwed up in zoning in Boston when whatever the percentage is, such a high percentage of stuff needs an exemption. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with that. We've changed some of that. Um, I'll give you one, one basic example. So 2013, if you opened a restaurant and you wanted to have a takeout in the restaurant, you had to go to the Zoning Board of Appeal to get approval to do a takeout. We eliminated that. We did a pilot program for um, accessory dwellings in East Boston. Um, these are basement apartments um, that people want to convert, as, as whether in-law apartments or what have you. And we're looking at a program right now of how do we get those maybe blanketed across the city of Boston, so you don't have to. It doesn't trigger a ZBA approval. When we we, we looked at a whole, there's a whole series of. I don't have them in front of me. But we have a whole series of ZBA requirements, any ch changes that had to go in front of the ZBA that we eliminated when I took over as mayor uh, because it was just, it was bogging down the situation. Anytime you're talking about development in the city, there's always usually two sides, a pro and a con. Um, and um, there's a lot of concern, I guess, on, on both sides about that. Some people feel enabled being too built and some people feel enabled not being built. No, but I'm, I'm trying to address or get at the, the structural you know, the, the citywide issue or the citywide situation where, you know, frankly, I wonder why we have zoning at all. 50% of the cases, you end up going before the ZB, you know, going yeah, well, to appeal it. I mean, it just strikes me as crazy. The way the system was set up, I mean, you, if, you want to put, if you want to put a deck on your home, you have to go to ISD, pull a permit. They have to give you a denial, which triggers the ZBA. And there should be some some areas I think, and again we're going to look we're looking at all this now. There should be some areas that that basically it's a little bit of common sense. Do you really need to go to the ZBA to put a deck? Not, I'm not talking roof deck. I'm talking new porches on your homes and things like that. And I'm taking this as an opportunity to do an assessment of the Zoning Board of Appeal, a board that was set up in the 50s, that was set up with at the time it might have been uh, unique and creative when when they had the different areas of expertise. We have. You know, you have real estate folks, and you have architectural folks, and you have labors on there, and other folks. Um, we're going to look at all that. We have Sullivan and Whistler looking at that now, and coming back with, with some proposals. I think also we should be looking at the scope of what we what should go in front of the ZBA, and what should go at the BPDA, um, and what should go to the licensing board to see some of these processes that we have. The one thing we did is we we split the when we became the when I became the mayor, we took we had a night session for the ZBA. And we took the smaller projects that were really neighborhood oriented, and we, we moved them to night, the night, the night session, where people could, residents could come in and, and, and kind of approve or say they're for something or against something uh, to alleviate some of the concerns on the ZBA. Because ZBA will deal with a 50 story building 
one 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 minute's fifty-story building. The next minute, they're talking about you know they're adding a room onto a person's house, and it's kind of like some of this stuff. Are we over-regulating? We could be, and I think we have to we have to be very careful though, because there's a lot of people in the community, and a lot of communities like South Boston that watch what happens ZBA, and if somebody wants to add another room onto their house, there's a lot of community input and involvement around that. Sure, but how do you move? How was mayor? Do you move the city forward on a complicated issue like zoning? You know, we have Michelle Wu's proposal. And by the way, um, I'm still trying to figure out what I make of her proposal. Yeah. But one thing that impressed me about the proposal was the number of best practices in very specific areas that she cites from other cities. Yeah. But let me get back to my yeah. main point. How do you? move a complicated issue like zoning for the city forward? I think you collaborate. I think you collaborate with everyone. When, when, when um, Councilor Edwards called me to tell me she was going to um, file some, something with the city council, I asked her, I, I want you to be a partner with me moving forward. And she's like, absolutely, let's do this. And she said, I'm going to file, file for a conversation piece, and, and, and I'm sure she's going to push it, and we're going to have a conversation about it. I, I think that, you know, in the past, you know, holding, n not taking people's opinions, I don't know if that's always been the case here in City Hall, but I'm, I, I'm open to taking everyone's opinions and, and, and best practices and, and sharing ideas. And, I mean, listen, we've worked together on, on Airbnb. Uh, Council Wu and myself and, and, and the City Council. Uh, we worked together on um, the lobbying rules, the lobbying law. We worked together on that. We did start to work together on the um, ride-sharing companies, but the legislature did something different there. They took a lot of the control up there at the state. Uh, we've worked together on liquor licenses, myself and Council Presley when I first became the mayor. Uh, we worked together on uh, the plastic bag ban, myself and Councilor O'Malley. And, you know, and some people view it as, you know, there was a story written about how that's a sign of weakness. I don't find Oh, I, are you referring to that Globe yeah, story? Th th I don't think that, it's, that story I don't was think, That story was a crock. But I don't think it's a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of sharing. I mean, when I was a rep, it was a little different. When I worked with the, the governor, whoever it was, whether a Republican or a Democrat, if we could work together, it didn't matter. We worked together. And I think you have, I mean, listen, I respect... The city council. I respect the people that put the name on the ballot. We might not agree on everything, but but I do think that there's an opportunity. So to go back to zoning, I think if, if there's a need for a change, and we'd make it if 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 for some reason there's a wholesale change of the zoning board, the way they do business today, it's gonna have to be collaborative, because the people, the city councils, whether they're district or they're citywide, they get elected by the same exact people that elect me, so we're gonna hear the same things. And I think it's important to understand and work collaboratively with them. I got a flashback and ask you about your statement, if I recall correctly, that there wasn't a confirmed scandal at the zoning board that there are allegations. I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah, but yeah. Is that I think a lot of people who listen to this will think, wait a minute, what's he talking about? There was a city employee who pleaded guilty in federal court saying that he received a bribe from a developer in exchange for convincing an unnamed member yeah, yeah. of the ZBA yeah. to change their vote on a particular variance. Well, That's a scandal. Yeah, I don't know if it went that far saying change the vote, but that was definitely something when, when Brian Golden came in to me on Friday before Labor Day uh, to let me know that um, I knew something was wrong. He came in the office, he said, and I looked at him, I said, what's wrong? And he had told me that um, John Lynch just pled guilty, which I nearly fell out of my chair. Um, and, and he read the, 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 the press release, and in the press release it did reference uh, 
influence over his EBA board member, which obviously bothered me. But I, I knew once that happened, that would be the focus. There's, there's more. I think there's more to the story. I'm not sure what the story is, but I, that's not for me to worry about. My focus is worrying about the first thing we did was th then we had the long weekend. So f Saturday, Sunday, Monday, we're trying to figure out while everything is shut down, including the U.S. Attorney's Office, like, what is this? Because I got it at 4.30 on a Friday. So by the time Tuesday came, uh, we, we, d we dove into it. We reached out to the U.S. Attorney's Office, told them that we're open to any conversation to help them with whatever we need to help with. By Wednesday, we had brought on um, um, Br um, Brian Kelly to do a review of this particular case to see if there's any wrongdoing or if there was, just so we know the facts ourselves, and that will be public in the next couple of days, I think, next week. And then we did, we brought on Sullivan and Worcester two days later to actually look at it over potential, look at our policies and procedures at the ZBA because it's been around since I think 1956 maybe by statute at the state. And if there's any changes we have to bring, um, we're going to look at it, have a conversation and bring those changes that we have to. Are you pretty sure that there will be changes that, that have to be made? I know you're waiting on the, the result of these inquiries or reviews. But uh, the Bay State Banner has reported over the years that going back to the Menino years that you've had, for example, Joseph Feaster sitting as chairman of the ZBA and then representing people who have projects coming before it, recusing himself. But what are you going to do well, if the chair of the ZBA? You know, Isaiah reported that Craig Galvin was uh, participating in votes on projects and then down the road serving as the listing agent on those projects, yeah, which... And there's, there's, been other, there's been other members of the ZBA. It's basically, when you think the way it was created, and uh, in, in, again, when it was first created in the 50s, I don't know if anyone saw a natural conflict there, uh, but certainly as you fast forward into into the 2000s and, and where we are today, 2019, there's clearly issues that, that people are concerned about and that, you know, it's going to... Can, I can't def definitely say we're going to make changes, but I could say there's a good chance that there's going to be, it's, we're going to look at a very, it's somewhat of a different ZBA in the future of Boston. Yeah, well, we, we, we probably have to. I mean, to, to that point, I mean, uh, whether it was the Menino administration, whether it was the Flynn administration, people recuse themselves, whether it was Kevin White's administration, people recuse themselves, and I'm sure long before that too. Uh, and even, even under my administration, people have recused themselves off different votes, including, I think, Craig on, on some votes. Um, so we have to, we're going to have to look at this uh, because of, of the, the, the nature. But again, the way it was created, and this is not, we, I didn't create this, um, just to be clear, and nor did, I don't think my predecessors created this, so we, we have to, and it's not the only board. We have other boards in the city that um, are created that um, we don't have the ability to pick the members of the board. So for example, on the ZBA or other ones, Landmarks Commission, the other ones, they're appointed by organizations that send names to the mayor's office, and the mayor's office, in some cases, gets to pick one of the two or three names. In some cases, we don't. And there's, there's 300 boards across the city, and many of those boards, particularly the architectural boards, is Back Bay Architectural Commission, and, and Bay Village has one, and, and Beacon Hill has one, and there's a bunch of them that, that you know, the mayor does not, the mayor has to appoint the people that are given to him. Well, it, it, it's important for listeners to realize that when, if I'm correct about when the zoning board was set up in the 50s, Boston was an urban basket case. The city we all see now that's vibrant and booming and, you know, uh, adding a, residents, a, adding residents, hot a real place estate of market. great wealth was not the city that. I grew up in um, shoveling John Hines. Even, even in the last twenty years, it's a different city in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, I mean you think about 
the the companies we have here, the the, the industries we have here, um, you know, the tourism that we have here. It's completely. It's the neighborhood I grew up in. It's different. Well, Some places different than it was. I mean, the streets are still there. The sidewalks are still there. The houses are still there. Uh, but it's a different city. The one oh. time that my wife and I ever lived in Boston proper was when we house sat for another couple on Saxon Street in Dorchester, yeah, near right, where I used to right live. Behind me. And I remember that was the summer of '99. It was right before we got married, and we tried to get an apartment. Uh, well, what's that? That really sort of lush part of Savin Hill, right behind the Globe Building. Over the bridge. Um, over the bridge. Over yeah. the bridge. Over the yeah. bridge. Yeah, we tried it. We tried to get a two-bedroom apartment. Maybe it was a one-bedroom over the bridge, and we we weren't making enough money. And I remember the landlord. He was just the nicest guy, and I could 99. tell he felt. Yeah, that was ninety-nine. It's and at that now. point, I mean, that what what the people we were house sitting for were paying for their place on Saxton was nuts. Yes. No. Well, so people little. asked me when I came back to Boston after. Um, living in New York for more or less seven years, you know, what did I find different? And I, what had hit me then was how international Boston had become. And I'm not talking about the influx of people, immigrants from other countries. I meant at the time, not just international students, but business in Boston had oh, yeah. changed so much. You know, downtown Boston, business based in, you know, what that loosely called State Street, had become very international. You mentioned that the inquiries into the ZBA are going to come back pretty quickly. I have wondered for a little while whatever became of that review of tourism and special events that you announced was going to be conducted in the wake of the Boston Calling indictments. Because yeah. uh, it's been, I think, it's been a few three years. and a half yeah, years, if, years, if memory serves. You know, we, we had the report w was, was being worked on. We wanted to make sure... Um, the case was complete before we move forward. Any 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 changes there? Um, the case is complete, um, and you know we have a new director coming in, uh, starting in the office uh, next week. Um, and that new director's responsibility will be to run our office of tourism. Um, and in that office, uh, one of the functions of that office, which is the permitting function, uh, will be taken out of that office and put into licensing. Um, and that's probably something that. I don't know why it was there in the first place, uh, but it would seem like it seems like a simple fix, um, and that's one of the one of the rules and responsibilities that that'll be handled now by licensing. For people who uh, either aren't following this story closely or are, but might struggle to think through Boston city processes, what will that shift accomplish? Um, just keeping licensing in, in in a place where it should be. Uh, licensing that we have right now, entertainment licenses, liquor licenses. Um, you know, at some point, maybe some other licenses that, that are required in the city. We're looking at different areas now of where licenses are being, um, where they're given out, whether it's entertainment, well, not entertainment, but hypothetically marijuana and places like that. Looking and, and putting in, a, in, a, in an office that, that is actually better suited for that, that has uh, the legal support up there, has the, the staff support to be able to handle that type of, those type of venues and events. I mean, generally what happens is we have an, when we have something on the plaza, um, that's an activity, a lot of that comes with a liquor license request or an entertainment license request. So, you know, it, it just it, it just lines up perfectly where it should have been there in the first place. You shared with us a synopsis of, of the uh, committee's findings. Yeah. Is the public going to get to see the full report? Yeah, the, well, you're getting it now. The report's going out. Let's get back to housing. Um, in your remarks to the Boston Chamber, you talk about the need to build more 
middle class housing. Isn't that an admission that the status quo isn't working? I mean, in the remarks that you shared with us, which was great, I think you said something like, we have fallen short when it comes to middle class housing. We have. I mean, mean, when, when in 2014, probably 13 and 12, uh, we were seeing, um, maybe not publicly, but there was definitely a squeeze on housing prices. Actually, Adam, in 99, there might have been a squeeze when you were looking for an apartment in Savin Hill in 1999, not to be able to find one where the rents could go up and there wasn't enough supply in the market. Um, in 2014, when we came in here, we realized really quickly that Boston was growing at an incredible clip, roughly 10,000 people a year. I'd say it's probably a little less than that, but roughly, I'd say 10,000 in the last five years adding 120,000 new jobs to our economy over the last five year, over the last six years, um, and seeing the growth of Boston like never before. Um, and, and I think that uh, when we put a housing plan together, it was first 53,000 units of new housing by the year 2030, um, really focusing on um, creating more units and, and, and building units. So when I say creating units, trying to work with the college universities to build on-campus housing, which would free up housing stock in the neighborhoods. And then uh, senior housing, which the first report really wasn't that strong. We weren't able to do a lot of senior housing. We're trying to build more senior housing. And the the reason for that is that seniors that live in their homes in Boston, if they wanted to sell and move into families and move into senior living, uh, we could do that. And then the high-end stuff kind of gets built by itself because there's, there's a desire to move into the city. In the low income, we have subsidies that we help, whether it's IDP or, or city estate, subsidy, city-owned land, all of those areas. And what we really found out as we, as we ventured in now five and a half years later, we've created uh, 31,000 units of new housing. We have 27 or something thousand in the pipeline. And the middle class housing, the, the market rate housing in, across, the, across the neighborhood, Adam, that you, have, you and me and other people wanted, it's just not getting built. And, and Peter, to your point, it, it's very complicated. And, and I think a lot of development, the development community, it wants to get a bigger return on investment. And I think that we have to really be creative. And, and I'm going to talk to the chamber about that today. No, I talked to the chamber about that today. And, and, and really figuring out how do we sit down with developers and people who do this and how do we get them to build it um i hear you know i hear these stories all the time well actually i'll give you a better example so i went to i went to a a, a drift the other day it's a startup company a tech company in boston and um there was about 300 kids young people there and i asked them to uh show me a show of hands of how many people came to Boston for college. And literally 80% of the room, hands went up. Mm. And I said, how many of you still live in Boston? And about almost 80% of the room, hands stayed up. And I said, how many of you own? And most of the hands went down. And, and, and I was talking to them. And I realized that if, if we want to keep this, these young people here in Boston, that they're living here now and working here now and, and eventually want to start a family here now, how do we keep them here? We need to really create more more for, more middle-class housing. These are folks that, that are out of the income eligibility for low-income housing and they're not in the the bracket of the high end and this middle-class housing is where the squeeze is there are people that grew up in the city that work for the city hall or work somewhere else and, and they can't afford they want to live here they want to buy a home here they want to stay here or rent an apartment and they just can't afford it and i really think that in order for us to stay a, 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 an equitable city for all we need to build this we need to get more people more 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 people in this space to build this type of housing if we don't we're going to be a city that houses poorer people and rich people and we're going to lose the the soul of the middle class in boston and they're going to go to other places and that's why i think it's so important to really focus on this type of housing let me jump around here and um there's a question i've been dying to ask for months and months and months about schools 
when you and John Conley were facing off yep. um, in the final race for mayor, I have pretty vivid memories of both of you having broad agreement about the need to close schools in Boston because the decline in student population was making some schools very inefficient mm -hmm. and the result was money wasn't being maximized for, for students. In the classroom. It, it seems that I recognize how controversial closing schools can be, but it seems like for people who think we need to close schools, uh, the program seems stalled. Now, there are many people who think we don't need to close schools, too. I realize how We've closed some schools, and it's a little controversial every yeah. time we have one. But, but are you happy with the rate at which that's going? I mean, no. I mean, I mean, another thing, you know, when you think about our school district, there's 56,000 kids in our district. We have uh, still have about 122 schools, I think, still. Um, some of those schools are at capacity and, and busting at the seams because of the the, the enrollment in those schools. Some of those schools um, are losing population every day. We get into this battle every year during budget when we under people say we underfund the school, but it's based on student population. You know, we've made some of those adjustments. We've merged some schools. Last last year, we we, we closed uh, West Roxbury High School. We closed another program out in West Roxbury. Um, we closed um, um, a couple of the schools in the city of Boston and merged them. Uh, the McCormick's being closed in, in, in next year, I believe, and we're going to be merging those, those schools in. We're looking at some of the other K six to eights. Uh, we're looking at expanding um, grades in some of the schools that are K to five now to K to sixes. Uh, so we're, we're in the. It took us a, a few years here to figure out the system. No, I say not figure out the system, but get to a point where we're more comfortable with making these um, adjustments and, and, and consolidations in some cases and closing. Um, you know, it, it, it's a complicated process. I mean, I think one of the things that, that happens that takes a lot of time is that when, when a school is slated to be closed or merged, uh, it literally you have to get ahead of it a year ahead of time to, to let the school community know what you're doing. It's not just simply closing a school today and saying next September you're going to be going to X school. You have to go to the school community with the parents, with the kids, with the administrators, find places for these kids to go to school. Um, is it going as quickly as I'd like some of the consolidations and construction of schools? No, you always want it to go faster, but it is it is a question sometimes of, of financial resources and able to renovate and build these new schools that we're doing. And we're building one now, Boston Arts Academy. The Carter School's next. Josiah Quincy's coming after that. We've built the Dearborn STEM Academy. We've replaced roofs and boilers and windows in a ton of schools and, and, and try to bring them up to what we need to. Uh, but we're talking billions of dollars over the next probably 20 years of, of, of new construction we have to do in the city. Let, let me try to connect to two issues we just spoke about. The need for middle class, of, of middle class housing and the workforce housing and the need to get more people who aren't poor into the Boston school system. Do you see a connection there's there? An, there's an absolute connection. Um, there's no question about it. Um, you know, I think about that all the time. I mean, I, I've told the story in the past where um, I've seen neighbors um, on my old street where I lived in Savin Hill, um, a couple houses down from me, second floor, where you see a couple move in, they have a baby, second baby they move out then another couple moves in they have a baby second they move out and it's all based on schools and education a lot of it is because they don't have they don't think they'll have access to a local school or they don't think of access to a good school there is no question that the next generation of young people millennials that are in our city of boston 
um, their involvement in our schools will make or break our schools. Um, it's going to be because because I think when you have part of the success of a school is having a very active parental involvement in the school life itself. Uh, one thing John Conley did uh, in his wife when 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 his child when his girl um, didn't get, I don't think she got into a school they wanted to get into it she got into the Trotter School in Roxbury. Yeah. Um, John and a bunch of parents um, went together uh, and, and said, "We're going to make this work." And when they when they were active in the school, they made a huge difference in the school and the school life. And we need more parents like that to to, to be willing to make that investment. Um, we have the Kenny School in Dorchester, which was a level three school for years. Uh, you know, maybe go level four. Not really looking forward to going level two. And, and now you have a whole new school community in there, and the school is thriving and doing great. Uh, the Winthrop in Roxbury was a level was level four school. Uh, Natixis went in there as a business partner, got a great dynamic leader there, parent. Now it's a school that that's a that's a level one school. So there's a, there's a lot of cases where uh, it's not going to be necessarily the policies we put in place, but it's going to be having the outside involvement by parents and by 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 business community leaders and by a good solid base of teachers and a good visionary leader. I know we got to wrap up because you have a city to run, but there's one question I really want to ask you before we go here, and then Peter, you might get one more crack at the mirror, I guess. The Globe editorial page just praised you for your apparent open-mindedness when it comes to safe injection yeah. sites. Um, as you know much better than me, you've had to deal with the issue of opioid addiction throughout your tenure as mayor, and it's not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon. I'm wondering if the way you think about opioid addiction has shifted over your time in office. And I'm especially interested in your perspective as a guy who's in recovery who battled alcohol addiction on whether you think there are maybe differences between being addicted to opioids on the one hand and being an alcoholic on the other that you might not have been aware of when you took over as mayor. Heroin is a powerful drug. Um, and uh, before I was the mayor, I, I watched people come into the halls with a heroin addiction, and it just seems uh, very difficult. Um, the impact that the drug boost has bad bad impacts on your brain as well, alcohol. But the impact of heroin addiction on the brain on the individual seems a little more complicated. Um, and, and I mean, I've seen people that are heroin addicts get sober and live a great life and, and get sober and never use again and raise a family, buy a home, and have, be su successful. Uh, but I, the impact, it, it just so, I, I don't have the scientific reasoning for it. I'm sure there is one. But I just see it's, it's a very hard, hard addiction to, to, to get off of. Um, the system that's set up today uh, of five-day detox is not going to help a heroin addict. Um, it needs long-term, you need long-term care. Um, you need to have a continuum of care. Um, whether that is through abstinence and an and abstinence-based program, whether that's through a suboxone clinic or a methadone clinic, uh, but you need to have the follow-up care there as well. I think it's so important. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I met with hospital presidents today and we talked a bit about addiction and, and the need for all of it. If the, and I said this today to the presidents of hospitals. If, you, if, 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 if I was diagnosed with cancer today, and I use what I had as a kid, if I was diagnosed with Berkowitz lymphoma today, I would have the Dana-Farber wrap me into a program for treatment. You'd have, you know, Mass General or, or somebody, or Brigham Women, somebody wrap me around with additional cares for, for, for radiation. They would get me through a system of, of, of 
of trying to cure me of, of my disease. Once I was cured, there would be a follow-up every six months for a year or two, and then every, every one year for five years, and then every five years after that. We have such a system in place for medical treatment for, for diseases, but when it comes to addiction, even though we say it's a disease and people just define it and it's diagnosed as a disease, we don't treat it the same way. We, we, don't, we don't give it the same uh, amount of attention it deserves, I don't think. And, and I think we have to start thinking a little more differently about thinking of addiction as cancer or diabetes or whatever, whatever you put the disease in. We have to start treating it a little more with a comprehensive plan, and we don't do that today in our society, in my opinion. Let me ask what I think will be our final question, and it's on this general theme. Because Boston's the capital city, because it's the economic hub of New England, it draws addicts because there's resources here, there's money here. It's, it's easier to live on the street here than it is elsewhere. That suggests to me that the, the state, and the governor in particular, should be giving Boston more help. Is that a reasonable t thing to think of? I wouldn't. I don't look at it that way. I think if we have, a, if we had a, a a better system of care, and we have, a, when I say that, I mean compared to other cities and states around America, we have a a, a strong system. So I got to give credit where credit's due. But but I think if if insurance companies were to pay more, if hospitals were treated differently, treated this disease differently, if if we worked as a community in a different way. Um, I think we would be able to address the issue. I think right now the beds, when you think about the beds, um, we, we have detox beds throughout the state. We have a homeless shelter system that's not in every city and town. Uh, it's in some, and Boston's the biggest. Uh, we don't have a lot of halfway house beds. We, there's a shortage of halfway house beds, and one of the things I want to do in Long Island is build, build a campus out there and put some more beds out there. Uh, but I think as a society, whether it's a federal government or state governments across the country, we have to start looking at this issue in a different way. So I, I wouldn't say, I think it's more spreading spreading out the system. So when you, if you have, a, let's say you live in you live in Orange, Massachusetts, and your son is, or daughter is addicted, and you have no idea where to turn to, who to turn to, there should be a system right there that they contact and, and be able to access treatment programs in their, in their region. Um, that, that's what should happen, I think. Uh, Mayor Marty Walsh, thank you for talking with me and Peter Kansas. You're welcome. Thank you. It's well, let's, the truth. let's do this sometime again. All right. Soon. Love to.